Welcome to Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is brought to you in part by the generous underwriting of CMF Curo. Learn more at mycatholichealthcare.org. Live your Catholic faith in your healthcare with CMF Curo. Today, our guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Returning to Dr. Doctor, we have the effervescent Dr. Francie Broghammer, a young psychiatrist who will help us understand medications used for mental illness. Andrew, each day a substantial portion of your patients have a mental health concern. What makes this topic important for our listeners? Yeah, I think it's really, really so common. And uh, I, I think probably most of our listeners will appreciate that. I, I know talking to a lot of the older doctors in training, many people feel like something marks their career. And a lot of the people that uh, I trained under spoke about like the AIDS epidemic. Ah. Um, other people would talk about the advances in imaging and stuff like that. And I don't know, I'm, I'm not too far into it, but it's looking awful suspicious like mental health might mark my career. Because I guess you wouldn't think of it as much in the past, right? I had that impression, but- it is so common. I think it's becoming more common. We've talked on other shows about uh, technology use and screen time and isolation leading to mental health issues. But I would say uh, it might be the most common thing that I see in my practice. I mean, may maybe blood pressure is more common, but mental health is definitely more common than diabetes in the patients I care for. And the patients realize usually there's something wrong with their mental health, whereas with diabetes or with high blood pressure, they probably don't necessarily know. That's right. And and it's so challenging too. And one of the things I'm hoping that Francie can help us address is the overarching kind of stigma that comes with mental health. And we've we've gotten to enjoy a lot of talks and episodes about mental health on this podcast. Um, we've done several with Dr. Kevin Majors and how to treat anxiety with reframing and whatnot. But one of the things we haven't talked a lot about is the medications that are used frequently. And I know I use these a lot in my practice. They're some of the most common medications that are prescribed in the country. And so we're hoping that Francie can shed some light, not only some light, but hopefully dispel some of the stigma. Because one of the biggest barriers that I find with people is that you see them suffering, you make a diagnosis, you agree on the diagnosis, and they'd prefer to suffer because of the stigma. And and that's a big challenge because- The stigma of the diagnosis or the stigma of being on medications for the diagnosis? The stigma of the medications, primarily. People get real comfortable with having their own crosses, uh, but many people would rather suffer uh, than, than to take the cure. And at the end of the day, it is their prerogative, but I'm hoping that Francie can help us walk through some good strategies regarding medicine, some bad strategies, and, and you know, kind of her thoughts, especially as a specialist. I know this is a big part of her practice. And the stats here are pretty amazing. Just under one half of all U.S. adults who have a mental illness diagnosis are receiving treatment. Just under half. So over half are not. And then among men, it's even worse. Surprise, surprise. Only 37% of men with a mental health diagnosis are receiving any treatment for it. Uh, but even a lower demographic, and this surprised me, only 21% of Asians with known mental illness are seeking treatment or receiving treatment for it. Yeah, it's hard to figure some of the, you know, we talk a lot about disparities and, and uh, people often try and figure out why this is. Is there a bias or is it just access or what is going on here? But you see numbers stand out like that. And the, the male-female thing, okay, I can appreciate that. Uh, I think that might be self-evident. But some of the ethnic things, that's hard to understand, isn't it? Right, because um, uh, only a third of Hispanic or Latino are. Uh, just over a third of black or African-American and about half of whites are uh, and about half of women are who are diagnosed. So there's a lot of people out there with mental illness who could benefit from treatment who are not receiving it. And Tom, you've dug up some really good statistics about the different, or I guess the most common types of mental illness diagnoses that people receive. Yeah. Well, we think, you know, number one, we think about depression in any given year, one out of every 14 people would meet criteria for major depression, and that increases to one out of six lifetime. That's a big deal. Yeah, that's a, that's a huge number. And especially when you look over the course of our life, I think many people, again, kind of a big part of what I hope to accomplish out of this episode is dispelling some of the stigma. A lot of people feel like it's a personal failing of some kind if they're suffering 
with depression, anxiety, or something else. And what I, I tell people commonly is there's, there's nobody who's diabetic that, that wanted to be <laughs> diabetic, or it's not a, a personal failing usually that people have high blood pressure. Uh, a lot of times it's genetics, uh, maybe a little lifestyle, maybe age, but personal failing does not crack into my thought process. And with both of those diseases, as with mental health diseases, there are non-pharmacologic, non-medical ways to improve, you know, yes. diet and exercise, uh, all three areas, you know, blood pressure, diabetes, and depression, but all three can also benefit from medication. So why do we put mental illness in this separate bucket? Yeah, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to say. And I mean, like pretty much most medical apart, apart from some acute surgical issues, most things, you know, clean living and good lifestyle habits has to be foundational before you get into anything else. And with mental illness, we have the benefits also of counseling and the reframing type things that Dr. Majors talks about. And then drugs are one part of it. But I, I'm hoping that Francie can help us kind of understand what's the best way to move forward, especially if someone we know and love or even ourselves are struggling with symptoms. How, how do we move forward and what would be a reasonable way to think about it? And we're going to talk about drugs for not only depression, but for various types of anxiety disorders, panic disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, bipolar disorder, and then the psychoses such as schizophrenia, which really need medication in many instances. Oh, yes. It's, it's so challenging. But especially with some of those, especially the schizophrenia and the bipolar disorder, when they get appropriately controlled on medication, it's amazing, you know, the difference and just the fullness of life that they can lead as opposed to really being trapped. I think many people have seen, seen kind of illustrations of schizophrenia, especially in movies in Hollywood. I think commonly of that, that movie with, with Russell Crowe, uh, Beautiful Mind from some oh, yes. years back. There was a Nobel laureate who was schizophrenic. And, uh, you know, seeing that in practice, I never would have guessed before I went into medicine that taking taking a medication to treat this condition, all of a sudden rational and functional, but otherwise you're so handicapped and trapped with with these symptoms. Yes. And before interviewing Francie, we have a medical trivia question of the day. Category is history of psychopharmacology. Mm. Yeah, we love those polysyllabic words. In other words, the history of making drugs for mental health disorders. So the synthesis of the drug chlorpromazine marked the beginning of modern psychopharmacology. This was the first drug that didn't merely mask the symptoms of disease, but actually treated the illness, such as anxiety, tension, agitation, confusion, delirium, or hostility, whether occurring in a schizophrenic patient, manic depressive one, or in other states. The question is, in what year was this first drug to treat mental illness developed? It's a multiple choice. It's in multiples of 10. Is it 1910, 1920, 1930, 1940, or 1950? When was the first psychoactive drug to treat mental illness developed? You're going to have to wait till the end of the show to find out. Welcome to our interview today on medications for mental illness with Dr. Francie Broghammer. Francie played Division I women's lacrosse at University of Notre Dame just a couple hours from where Andrew and I are, and she has now returned to the Midwest. She's practicing psychiatry outside the Twin Cities in uh, Minnesota. So welcome from California, where she just finished her training in psychiatry at the University of California in Irvine. Uh, she's got some great interests, medical ethics, education, spirituality, human flourishing. She's an American Psychiatric Association Leadership Fellow, board member for Pepperdine University's American Project, and she has three children, ages seven, one, and a newborn, and yet she's here with us today on Dr. Dr. Francie. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. This is one of my the favorite things I get to do with you guys. Oh, my goodness. Well, thank you. Well, on that note, you know, we've talked a lot on Dr. Doctor about ways to handle different mental illnesses without medication. So it's about time we get to medication. So, Francie, how was treating mental illness different before psychiatric medications came on the scene? Oh, gosh. I don't even know if you could say that they were treating mental illness. I think maybe they were containing it at best. So prior to the advent of medications, there was psychiatric asylums or mental health asylums. And essentially, individuals who struggled with mental health symptoms were not to be seen or heard from in society. They were locked away, 
And these asylums were really not glamorous places. It's something that movies like to kind of prey on because it's good content, right? They lock you up. It's dark. It's dirty. It's dingy. And because there wasn't medications available, they'd say, okay, what, what means do we have to quote unquote control these people, right? And you're looking largely at behavioral interventions. That's a really nice way of saying things that in modern society we would largely consider torture, right? Um, restraints, straight jackets. There was a big belief that cold water actually would kind of shock some of these symptoms into going away or into submission. And so they'd spend hours on end in ice baths, just really Ooh. terrible, terrible um, approaches to, to handling people who are really struggling to begin with. So I don't think treatment would be the word I would use. And I am so grateful that we are no longer in that state. Well, Francie, what, what makes it possible to treat some diseases like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, depression with chemicals? In, in other words, I guess, is psychiatric, psychiatric illnesses, are they more in the body or the, the soul or mind or both? How should we think of that? That's a very good philosophical question that we could probably riff on for hours. <laughs> but to put it simply, um, there's no straightforward answer, but we know that there is always at least some component of a chemical imbalance that goes along with this, right? Um, once you are in a state where your chemicals are no longer balanced, there's a lot of psychological suffering that can go along with that. There's a lot of spiritual suffering that can go along with that. And that's where the waters get really mucky um, <laughs> as far as saying, you know, is it this or is it that? But at its core, we do know enough at this point in time fast forwarding from the asylum days to say, you know, there's neuro neurotransmitters or chemicals in your brain that make a difference with how we think, how we feel and how we act. These are things like dopamine and serotonin, norepinephrine, wherever these chemicals are in whatever levels and whatever pathways will impact how we think, feel and act. And that's really the foundation of how medications were created and how we've come to understand a lot of the most common mental illnesses we address. So one of the things that I think of here is an analogy. We recently did a, a show on a leukemia and lymphoma and how they're coming out with really targeted medications versus the chemotherapy drugs that were like carpet bombing, you know, a whole continent. Now you're just like a sniper. Now, when I think of psychiatric drugs, I think, okay, you got the brain, you got all these neurotransmitters, but the medication's bathing the whole area. It doesn't feel particularly targeted. Is that an apt analogy or are they more targeted than we realize? That is a very apt analogy, and that is the entire reason I went into psychiatry, Tom. Tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's my line. Um, <laughs> so the, to me, psychiatry is kind of the last front, one of the last frontiers in medicine, because we understand a lot of cancers. We can narrow it down to this specific pathway, this specific um, chemical that we're targeting, et cetera, or receptor that we're targeting. But if you really back up and say, Kind of what is psychiatry? Okay, I'll ask you this question, right? What is neurology? It's the study of the brain. Okay, so if neurology is the study of the brain, what is psychiatry? Well, would it be the study of the brain's influence on behavior? So, or thought? It's, it's probably more aptly understood as the study of the mind, right? So, then what is the difference between the brain and the mind, and how do you define the mind? Where is the mind even? Right. Again, we're getting into some philosophical territory, yes. which is exactly why um, psychiatry is the last frontier in medicine. And we are not able to answer a lot of these questions in a succinct scientific, if this receptor, then that chemical, yes. then this medication yes. way. We are getting there. We're making large strides by the year, but we're still a long way from having these targeted interventions. And I'll, I'll maybe back up and say it's really important to understand the driving cause of some of the symptoms. We talked about understanding there's a chemical imbalance. Well, why? We're now seeing that there's increasing rates of depression, for example, in people who have diabetes. And we're understanding that that's probably more linked to inflammatory signals going throughout the body leading to inflammation in the brain. So is, is depression in someone who has diabetes gonna need to be treated differently than depression in someone who doesn't have diabetes because ah. there's not as much inflammation. And so, these are the questions we're just starting to answer. So depression is really a big wastebasket term, but it could be the final common pathway of a bunch of different causes. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Fran Francie, how, how would it be best for patients or, or I guess in your practice, how do you decide when a mental illness would be best treated with medicine or without medicine? Ooh, or both? Good, good question. <laughs> that I answer so many times a day because it varies so much from person to person. General rule of thumb 
if you get to the point that your symptoms are greatly impacting your quality of life, your ability to work, to love, to worship, and to be present, that's oftentimes where we need to start considering medications. But I want to put this in a framework where we understand that medications are not in and of themselves a standalone solution, right? Because it's, let's say, for example, you have someone, and I, I, I've seen this, a, a recent patient I had, so depressed that they couldn't really even engage in the things that gave their life meaning anymore. They stopped going to their line dancing classes. They were no longer calling their grandchildren. They were sitting inside in a dark room, maybe having one meal a day because they didn't even have the energy to get up and prepare food. So all of a sudden they're losing weight and they're really kind of just fading away, you know? And so medications in and of themselves in this instance are not going to undo all of that. But what they do for this individual who felt so stuck and was suffering in a way that was so severe in comparison to how she lived her life before, the medication started to give her some wiggle room. It's not necessarily like she woke up and was like, I'm healed, I'm the happiest I've ever been, I'm gonna have the best day ever. She woke up and said, you know, I'm still not sure that I want to go to line dancing and it's a lot of work to make this meal, but I'm going to do it, right? And it's in starting to nourish her body again, both by giving herself more sustenance and by interacting with people around her, by welcoming her grandchildren back into her life, doing all of these things, she was able to find true healing. But it really, she was so stuck and kind of so withered away that we needed the medication to kind of start the ball rolling in that direction. Francie, one of the things that is confusing to me about medications for for depression, for example, you know, when somebody comes in with sinusitis or an ear infection, everybody wants an antibiotic to, to nip it in the bud, even if it's not that bad yet. Get, get me the antibiotic quickly. Um, somebody can be profoundly suffering with depression um, and would rather suffer. Do you see that? What's what's the deal? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I'm so glad you brought this up. Again, one of the one of the key driving reasons I went into the field of psychiatry. It's so unique from almost any other field in medicine because mental illness is the one of the only types of illnesses where the symptoms themselves prevent you from seeking care. Right? Mm. If you have if you have stomach cancer and you're losing weight and you're in pain and you're vomiting blood, you are in the emergency room almost immediately and they're doing the workup and you're getting the treatment. But if you're profoundly depressed to the point that you're, you're suicidal, maybe you're even at risk of taking your life a, a, where depression turns fatal, right? The very last thing you want to do is go into an emergency room with strangers, bright lights. They're going to ask you a million questions, <laughs> get you to take your clothes off and wear a hospital gown, and you don't know what's going to happen, right? So you're two people who are very sick in very different ways. One is going to reach out for help and one is going to withdraw from help. And I think that's one of the great challenges and the great nuances that we face in the field of psychiatry. So the game changer, you know, the first medications treated psychoses like schizophrenia. Describe what life was like for these patients before and with the advent of these new drugs to treat them. Oh, uh, good question. So we talked about the asylums already, right? These patients are not to be seen. They're not to be heard. They are not dignified members of society. And then we entered this age, this era where um, therapy became a little bit more common. And anyone who's had experience with therapy might know that it, when someone's really psychotic, and I'm going to back up and say psychosis is when your thoughts are really scrambled up in your mind. You're going to say things that, and think things that just absolutely don't make sense. You're going to think people are following you. You're going to hear voices. You're going to see things. Well, sitting down to talk to someone about your feelings when your own thoughts don't make sense to you is not only difficult, but sometimes dangerous, right? (laughs) So we went from this asylum age to this therapy age that was okay, maybe at best if you squint at it the right right way. And then we had in the mid-1900s, the advent of psychotropic medications, right? Antipsychotics. And these medications act by blocking dopamine in your brain and certain pathways that are responsible for some of this thought disorganization and some of these hallucinations. And that's really when we were able to see that the thoughts calmed down a little bit and, and thoughts started to make more sense to people. And once that happened, then you could partner it with therapy. And the therapy was much more impactful at that point in time. So Francie, especially for psychoses, I, I think probably a lot of our listeners have not seen somebody who's actively psychotic. Describe what happens when they get on a medication acutely or, or chronically and that change in their life. 
you are just asking all the right questions. So this is one of the third reasons I went into psychiatry. <laughs> I'll ask the questions. <laughs> so I will never forget when I was a third year medical student and I like, I never thought I was going to go into psych, right? And this patient was manic, not sleeping, racing thoughts, and they also had psychotic features. And he was a 19 year old gentleman running around in the, in the courtroom, or sorry, the um, courtyard of the, the hospital that we were at and like picking things out of the bushes and saying that they were these magic peppers and he could talk to aliens. And I was like, what is going on? How is this 19 year old ever going to get back to college? And we were on this rotation for six weeks. I was on this unit for two weeks. In the two weeks I was working with this patient, we were able to start some antipsychotic medications. And by the time I left, he was able to say, let me tell you what I was experiencing two weeks ago. He goes, it's, I've never experienced anything like it, right? It just didn't make sense to me, but it felt so real in the moment. And he was a little bit embarrassed, you could tell, right? But he, in hindsight, even knew that his thoughts were disorganized and really didn't make sense. Um, but, and I'll tell you what, these medications don't act quickly always, oftentimes, especially with antipsychotics, you know, we'll see more improvement on week three, four, five, six, and even more improvement six months down the line. But the first two, three, four days you're on these medications where we really start to just say, hold it, dopamine, not in this pathway, not today, things start to line up quickly. And it's just, it's a night and day improvement. It's not perfect, but it's enough to say, oh my gosh, I can't believe I was in that state two or three days ago. And I think that that is a remarkable thing to witness. Francie, which mental health problems almost require medications and don't benefit a whole lot from counseling or behavioral approaches? Good question. So I'm gonna loop back to kind of what I said before. When someone is actively psychotic, that is an instance where you're really not gonna to see too much benefit from therapy alone or right. other behavioral interventions. Because really until we can make someone, assist someone's thoughts in becoming more clear and more linear to the point that they make sense to themselves and to other people, we're just kind of spinning our wheels. Um, so that would be the, the one thing that really comes to mind off the cuff there. So not bipolar. So would bipolar not be amenable to therapy? Is that the question? I, I'm saying, do, bi, do people with bipolar disorder need a medication most of the time? Absolutely. And I will clarify this by saying, when, they, when people with bipolar are in an acutely manic state, for example, doing therapy alone or behavioral interventions alone while they're in that really sick, decompensated state, you're not gonna see much benefit. So you need the medications, not only to pull them out of that state, but to pull them into a state where they will benefit more from the many other interventions that are available. So what are the other conditions like those where you really need medicines to get to the point where behavioral modification could help at all? Sure. So again, probably looping back to maybe the first example of severe depression that I gave you. Okay. Anytime you have a mental affliction to the point where you are just so withdrawn that you can no longer meaningfully participate in day-to-day -day life, that's really where you need medications to kind of move the needle just enough so that you can lean back into those other interventions that can, that can continue to assist. And what conditions are there where getting off of all medications is not a realistic goal? Great. So those would be anything that's considered a chronic condition. Schizophrenia, for example, schizoaffective disorder, which is a combination of schizophrenia and bipolar is probably the easiest way to understand it. Bipolar disorder is another chronic condition. These are all things that can be lifelong. Now, most people don't know that depression and anxiety can, but don't always also fall into this category. Very so good. when someone has an episode of depression and they, they're on the backside of it, the chances of them having a second episode of a, a major depressive disorder is about 50%. Once you've had two lifetime episodes of major depressive disorder, the chance of you having a third lifetime or a third lifetime episode is 85 to 90%. Once you've had three episodes, you're almost guaranteed to have four, right? So after one episode of severe depression or severe anxiety, we can say, you know, we can use medications to just treat you to get through this one episode and see how things go. But if someone comes to me and they've had three or four lifetime episodes of severe depression or severe anxiety, that's where we're starting to have the conversation of we need to think of this as a chronic disease. And we need to start talking about staying on medications between episodes, because when you do that, when you stay on medications between these episodes, what you do is two things. One, you decrease the likelihood of another episode happening. And two, if and when that episode does happen, 
it will be less severe than it would have been had you been off medications in the interim. Now, Francie. Oh, sorry, Tom. No, I, I just wanted before the break, one other question is the other side of that equation. What mental health conditions just don't respond to medications? Good question. So there's within mental health, there's a realm of diagnoses called personality disorders. And I, I hate this term for many reasons, because all of us have a personality that falls on a spectrum and you just kind of go to one extreme and say, this is the cutoff. And if you're on the other side, then you're disordered. What does that even mean? Right. But again, mental health is, is messy and nonspecific and we're still discovering it day by day. So but I'm talking about probably people would be most familiar with like narcissists, right? A narcissistic personality disorder or a borderline personality disorder. And these are best understood by individuals who just see the world differently. They see the world oftentimes as more threatening than other people do. And therefore, they're going to respond to things in a greater way than other people would. The example I often give people is, Andrew, I'm going to throw you under the bus here. We have video currently. You're sitting here. You're staring at me with a pretty blank face, right? <laughs> Most people... <laughs> <laughs> That's good. So most people would say, oh, maybe he's listening. Maybe he's zoned out. Maybe he's bored. Someone who has borderline personality disorder or narcissistic personality disorder would say, they're judging me. They like, this is a threat. They're going to view that in a very, very different way. And instead of me saying, oh, Andrew's kind of zoning out. He's thinking about what he's doing after this. No big deal. I'm going to say, I need to call Andrew after this. And I need to let him know that I am not okay with him judging me in that way. Right. So I'm going to respond in a way that's kind of larger than life. Now, we have no medications that undo me interpreting your blank face in this larger than life way. But we do have evidence that intensive long term therapy, very specific types of therapy, such as DBT or dialectical behavioral therapy, are really, really helpful in these instances. So that would be one of those carve outs where medications probably are not the most helpful and therapy or other behavioral interventions can be more helpful. Francie, that's perfect. <laughs> I, the blank face coming up on the break here. I'm like, oh, where, where do we take the break? This is our. This is going to be our doctor doctor break. Coming back with a more animated face and plenty of questions here on Doctor Doctor. <laughs> and we're back with Doctor Doctor, and we're talking about psychiatric medications with Doctor Francie Brokhammer. Francie, one of the things that I see a lot in my practice are folks who maybe, maybe come to terms kind of with the diagnosis, how, however they, they come to see me, but then they would rather suffer than take a medication to get better. Um, that seems weird to me. What's, what's the deal there? What should I do? Well, this is unfortunately more widespread than I would, I would think it ought to be or like it to be in 2021. But what we've, what we've seen widespread is that when someone breaks their arm, they're very willing to come in and get a cast. When someone has high blood pressure, it's not too hard to say, I think you should take this medicine to bring your, your blood pressure down 10 points. And they go, yeah, that's probably a good idea, right? If you have a headache, not too big of a deal to say, maybe I'll take Tylenol. But for some reason, in the back of our heads, we think if I'm suffering from mental health symptoms, such as depression or anxiety, it's because I'm doing something wrong. Maybe if I just try harder, there's this pick myself up by my bootstraps mentality which like we talked about just a little bit before this, isn't really fair because if your symptoms are so significant to the point that you've kind of retracted into yourself and you're not leaving the house and you're not going to work and you're not doing all these things, there's no amount of picking yourself up by your bootstraps that's gonna get you where you need to go. Just like sitting there if you broke your arm and staring at it really hard and thinking <laughs> if I just try harder, it'll heal. Like it just doesn't work that way, right? But because we can't see or understand the mind in the same way we can the bone or the kidney or the liver, we hold ourselves more accountable for the suffering. And that's just, I'll tell you what, it's not fair because untreated mental health or mental illness tends to only get worse with time. And so there's a lot of unnecessary suffering that goes on there. And things oftentimes, it's much easier to treat something when it's like 20% quote unquote decompensated, right? As opposed to 80% where we're, you've lost your job and you're divorced and you've lost 80 pounds because your symptoms are so severe. I'd rather see you when they're just starting to bubble. So maybe we only need a little bit of medication for a shorter period of time, as opposed to trying to undo all the damage that's been done. 
Yeah, Francie, I, I feel like so often people come in and they want to measure a neurotransmitter level or they hope that, <laughs> you know, if I wait long enough, things will get better. You, you had mentioned trying to catch it early. What are some of the biggest families of medicines that you would use to do that? Sure. So there's, I think for our purposes, I'll break it down into three common classes of medications. We have our antipsychotic medications. And these block dopamine in your brain, okay? And we know that dopamine tends to be a little bit more hyperactive in your brain when you're in a state of psychosis, meaning your thoughts are really confused. Maybe you're having hallucinations. That's class number one. That could be used in things like schizophrenia and bipolar. It can also be used for depression augmentation, but that's probably a more nuanced conversation for down the line. The next common class, most common class of medications is gonna be our antidepressant medications. 95% of antidepressants that are prescribed in the country are going to be what we call SSRIs or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And the way these work, the, the kind of boiled down version is they make your brain much more sensitive to serotonin. So it doesn't give you a hit of serotonin, but what it does is it makes the receptors more sensitive to the serotonin that's already there. And the cool thing about these medications is over time, after like nine to 12 months, you're body and your brain actually learns how to do this on its own because the receptors are learning over time, which is part of why you don't like one episode of depression. You don't have to be on these medications forever because your body is literally learning to produce more sensitive receptors. And so hopefully you don't slide backwards in the future. Um, the interesting thing about selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, they're called antidepressants. They're also first line treatment for anxiety disorders. We have to use them differently. We start at a lower dose and ultimately end up at a higher dose um, to address anxiety. So we dose them and we apply them differently, but they actually are remarkably effective and in some cases even more effective for anxiety than they are for depression because anxiety at its core is also some serotonin dysregulation. Now, the third class of medications would be anti-anxiety medicines. So I already told you a little bit about the SSRIs, yes. which really are the gold standard of treatment. But if you're coming in and you're in an acute panic attack right now, that SSRI isn't going to do much for you because it takes several weeks to kick in. So the, the class of medications that's most commonly used for acute anxiety is going to be benzodiazepines. These are your Ativans and your Xanaxes, for example. Um, and these medications work by essentially increasing GABA, which is a neurotransmitter, a chemical in your brain. And GABA is a chemical that just calms everything down. It turns the volume down, right? Um, and these are really, really helpful for severe anxiety in the moment right now. I like to think of them as a band-aid for anxiety. They make it go away if you have it today, but it does not address the core problem that's causing the anxiety. So oftentimes we'll have to partner a benzodiazepine with an SSRI to treat the here and now symptoms and then use the SSRI to treat the core of the dysregulation that's causing the anxiety. So isn't it true you only want to be on benzodiazepines for a short period of time? Typically, that is the case. What short period of time means varies from person to person. Um, I, for example, a lot of my patients who have cancer and who have anxiety related to their cancer, they're going to be going through chemo or radiation, sometimes even upwards of a year, and that's going to be an acute stressor the entire time. Right. Yeah. And so it's very, very appropriate prior to those treatments to use maybe like a low dose benzodiazepine to treat the acute anxiety so you can get the MRI or you can get the radiation or you can get the chemo. Um, but they're not using might, it every day for months. Ideally not. There, unfortunately, we do see that it's used often in that way because it's a quick, it's a quick fix, right? It solves the symptoms today, but unless it's partnered with something that's going to treat the core of the problem an SSRI and or therapy, I repeat, and or therapy, right? Depending on the specific instance, um, you're going to just need to go back to that benzodiazepine day after day after day because the same symptoms are still there. So if we're doing our job and we're doing it right, you won't need them after a number of months because the core has been treated. You know, Francie, one of the things that a lot of patients will mention to me is that they don't want to get hooked on a medicine. And usually we're, we're having that discussion around SSRIs. I don't want to have to depend on an SSRI. Mm -hmm. how, how, do, how does that come into play? Do you see that? And how is that different between SSRIs and benzodiazepines? Absolutely. And Andrew, if I had a dollar for every time I heard that, I would have no med student loans right now. <laughs> <laughs> because everyone, literally almost everyone I see has that exact concern. Am I going to be myself? Once I come off of this, I don't want to take a medication that I need to feel normal every day, right? These are some of the concerns that circulate. 
And what I will say is the cool thing about SSRIs, like I said, is it actually trains your receptors to be produced at a different frequency and a different sensitivity than they were before. So your body is learning as you take these medications. The a metaphor I use with patients is think about when you make jello, right? You have that hot liquid up front and then you put it in this mold, right? So we're going to consider your depression or anxiety to be this hot liquid jello and we put it in the mold that is the medication or the SSRI. And it, then we put it in the fridge and we let it settle. And after a number of hours or months in the medication instance, it starts to take shape, right? And if the medication does its job, which most of the time it does, we can pull that mold away and then voila, the jello knows what to do and it's in the shape that we need it to be in, right? And so it's not so much that you will need this mold forever. It's that you need a mold for a period of time. You kind of need to let it marinate and learn the shape it needs to be in so that when we pull it away, your body's able to do this on its own. It, we've seen this time and time again. These are not lifelong chronic medications unless you fall into that category we talked about where there's three, four, five plus lifetime episodes. And how is that different from benzodiazepines? So the irony here is people are less concerned. Well, I won't say everyone's less concerned, but in general, people are more eager to take the benzodiazepines because it solves the problem today, right? But the addiction risk is much, yes. much higher with the benzodiazepines. I have never, ever met a patient who's addicted to SSRIs, right? They might notice if they skip a day, they feel a little funny, and that's just because they need to be tapered off more tactfully, but that does not mean they're addicted, right? But we can see, when I say addiction, I'm talking about considering going out on the street and buying it. If you don't have it, right, like going to the emergency room and begging and doctor shopping, things like that, no one is ever doctor shopping for an SSRI. <laughs> but people will doctor shop to get access to the benzos because it feels good to have that immediate relief, right? And so benzodiazepines oftentimes people are less concerned about because they just want that relief and they want it right now. And they're less interested in the medication that's going to help them six weeks from now. And so they'll approach it very differently. Okay. Francie with SSRIs, there's been reports in the news. I don't know how true they are. That's why you're here to answer it about if kids take them, it can increase risk for suicidal activity. True or false? True. And true with a big heavy asterisk and caveat. And I'm so glad you asked this because I want to explain it. So, <laughs> <laughs> what we see with SSRIs, and there's a black box warning for this, by the way, this isn't even just something that's in the news. It is a black box warning may increase suicidal thoughts when you start this medication. And that is because when you are in a state of severe depression, your mood goes down and your energy goes down. Once you start SSRIs, your energy is the first thing to improve. We can see that in the first couple of days where it can actually take weeks for your mood to improve. So if you take someone who's feeling down and give them more energy, they start feeling real angsty, right? Mm. And that can lead to increased thoughts of suicide. We see this more often in teenagers. Um, the studies actually that showed increased suicidal thoughts was only in teenagers. And that's because they have a less developed prefrontal lobe, right? And yes. so they don't exactly know how to handle when they start having this energy and having this low mood, right? And so the, the thoughts increase. But what's interesting is the studies actually at this time showed thoughts went up, but actual suicide attempts or completed suicides did not go up. Oh. Actually, the exact opposite was true, that if you were started on these medications, even if your suicidal thoughts went up, as long as you were seeing a doctor during this time, your risk for suicide was lower than that of the general population. Oh, wow. oh, that is so good to know. And so it only applies if they're treated for depression, not if they're treated for anxiety as kids. Is that right? Yes, but I will say depression and anxiety are like twins, twin sisters, if you will. Oftentimes, if one is present, another one can be present either as a result of the first, right? Ah. I, have, I have so much anxiety that's been poorly treated that I've just given up and now I feel depressed as a result. So it can be secondary to that. Or they're, they're so intermixed that I oftentimes will assume one is there. If I see one, I kind of assume the other. Um, because like we said with SSRIs, also used for anxiety, if your energy goes up and you're anxious, guess what? You're not feeling very good, right? And so you can yes. also be at risk at that time as well, which is why if you recall, I said when we start SSRIs for anxiety, we start at a really low dose yes. for that yes. very reason. Because oh. you don't want energy to go up too much and make people feel more anxious when you're at, in essence, trying to treat the anxiety of the opposite. Right? Hey, Francie, how, how many times do you have to try a new medicine before you find the right one for a patient? I, <laughs> I wonder if, if that's a common question I get from people is, 
the first one didn't work. Medicines are not right for me. Right. Good question. And it's so frustrating because you have someone come in with high blood pressure. You say, take this. I'm pretty confident your blood pressure is going to drop eight to 10 points in 99 out of 100 patients, right? That does not happen in the field of psychiatry because we're still kind of in these earlier stages of understanding is your depression kind of down downstream of diabetes with some brain inflammation as opposed to protracted grief after the loss of a spouse. Those can present differently. They might need to be treated differently, right? So general rule of thumb, it's not uncommon for people to have two, three, or even four trials before they find the right medication. Um, I, I would not say after one failed trial that these medications are not for you. I've had a lot of success with trial two or trial three with most of my patients. After three trials, I would say about 80 to 90% of patients are, in, are at least responding, if not heading into remission. There's always going to be these carve-outs, um, which is that kind of remaining 10% of patients, and that's a, a separate nuanced conversation. But what I will say is when you go in and you do your psychiatric intake, they will take a family history. If your mom had depression and she responded well, really well to Prozac, for example, tell your doctor that because that gives them insight into what your genes are and how your family has responded over time. So as opposed to kind of picking one out of a hat that has a high likelihood of being pretty good for you, they can say with more confidence, you're probably going to respond to this better. So the family history is really So Francie, we talked on the one hand that a lot of patients don't want to take psychiatric medications, but is there another hand in where some medications are overprescribed? Yes. And circling back to benzodiazepines, there is a time and there is a place where they can be remarkably helpful. But what I have seen is that oftentimes people want to feel better right now, which I completely understand. But they'll say, hey, you can give me the Ativan, for example, that's going to take my anxiety away right now. So I don't want to take the SSRI that will treat my anxiety down the line. And so we're caught in this cycle of constantly providing a Band-Aid, but never providing a cure, right? And that's where I think that we oftentimes miss the mark in healthcare when it comes to mental health and, and treating mental health. Um, that's not to say benzos are bad. I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater here, but we just need to be mindful that a quick solution that helps you feel better today is not a long-term answer. And we also have to be mindful benzos can be addicting. They're dangerous when combined with alcohol or other medications. Um, and so the, the risk is really high here. So they need to be used cautiously. And the great irony is in the field of psychiatry, most people I know, most, most of my colleagues prescribe them very cautiously and very low amounts. It's oftentimes, you know, other fields where it's, oh, I'm having anxiety. Why don't you just take two milligrams of Xanax? I have prescribed two milligrams of Xanax less than twice in my entire career because that's a pretty high dose of a pretty addicting medication. But because it's not being prescribed by someone who's a specialist in the field, it's oftentimes overprescribed either at a higher dose or a higher frequency and not partnered with the SSRI to treat the core. So we're, we're seeing some problematic outcomes as a result of that. And how often do you see patients relying on medications too much when certain behavioral uh, changes could make a big difference for them? So this piggybacks onto the conversation we just had. And that's where I found something that solves my symptoms today. And so I no longer want to do the work to get me where I need to go, right? Just like someone would rather take a medication to help them lose weight as opposed to go to the gym to lose weight. And sometimes you need to have that bariatric surgery or you need the weight loss medication up front so that you can safely go to the gym, right? Maybe you're carrying around too much weight with you. Um, so there's a place where these things can be partnered, but I see this more often than not in things that make symptoms go away immediately. If you have anxiety and I can make that go away right now with a benzodiazepine, then you're going to be less inclined to go to therapy to really invest in your sleep hygiene, reinvest in your relationship. And so that those two questions are really closely tied. What are some of the greatest misconceptions that you've encountered regarding psychiatric drugs? So I think kind of like we talked about before, Andrew, it's, is this going to change me at my core? Absolutely not. Right. Am I, am I going to no longer be myself unless I take this medication? Absolutely not. Well, I need to take these medications for life. Well, possibly it depends on what the diagnosis is. Schizophrenia or bipolar? Probably. Right. A single episode of depression? Probably not. Five lifetime episodes of depression? Probably. But that's why it's, it's really beneficial if you're contending with serious mental health symptoms to work with a professional to decide what's right for you because it's really not a one-size-fits-all. And Francie, if our listeners want to learn more about this topic of psychiatric meds, where would you advise they go? 
So ideally to their doctor, because this has to be a personalized conversation based off your family history, the extent of the symptoms, how it's impacting you in your daily life, all of these things have to be taken into consideration. I hesitate to say the World Wide Web because there's so much misinformation out there, if you will, but a couple reliable sites if you're looking for some more information would be the Mayo Clinic. They have phenomenal resources available. Um, the National Alliance for Mental Illness or NAMI has wonderful informational um, pamphlets available, both on diagnoses and medications. And then the National Institute for Health, NIH, has a mental health subsection that also has some really good pamphlets and leaflets on these medications. And after all you've shared, what would you like to be the last message that listeners remember from this episode? I want them to remember that Andrew stared at me blankly the entire time. <laughs> you've got to be so Where's my mask? Get my mask. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm just kidding. <laughs> He's actually pretty animated, guys. He's great. Um, <laughs> okay, that'll balance out. <laughs> I, I couldn't. I just couldn't miss the opportunity. It was a layup. <laughs> but I think what I really want people to take home with them is that mental illness affects one in five people in America. Uh, my hunch is your family has more than five people in it. So we're talking about <laughs> you, your brother, your grandma, your best friend, someone that you know is going to struggle in this way, maybe even yourself. This is not a failing personally. It's not a failing spiritually. This at its core can be understood as a chemical imbalance and an environment that's not optimized for your health. And just like you can't fix a broken arm by willing it to heal faster and staring at it and trying harder, there is a time and a place for treatment and seeking help, whether it's through medications, therapy, or whatever else might be recommended, is not that you're giving up or that you're weak, but oftentimes or every time, seeking help is, help is a sign of strength because it takes a lot of courage to do that in kind of this nebulous unknown when you can't see the broken bone or feel the extra fluid on your legs from your heart failure. And like we said, this is one of the only illnesses where the symptoms themselves can prevent you from seeking treatment. And so reaching out and actually seeking help takes so much strength and so much courage, more than almost any other illness will ever require of you. Francie, this was a tremendous uh, episode. Many people are going to benefit. Thanks for being with us. And we are having you back again soon on the subject of play. Here on Dr. Doctor, we'll be back with the answer to the trivia question after the break. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor, and Tom was kind enough to give us a multiple-choice trivia question. It's hard when you get years, but multiple-choice helps. Tom, tell us so, about the answer. Yeah, when was the first drug to treat mental illness synthesized? 1910, 20, 30, 40, 50? It was 1950. Yeah, all those asylums before that. What a mess. How awful that was and how wonderful these drugs have been for people with previously untreatable diseases. Yes. I Andrew, was yes. What do you think about that? I, I mean, it was just so great to have Francie on. It's, it's important to talk about the drug side of things. We talk about the non-medicine uh, treatment strategies for a lot of things commonly. So I was happy to hear her. And, you know, my top three, the number one thing she said at the end there, one in five people will struggle with mental health at yes. some time in their life. And not to look at it as a failing. I mean, this is something that's very common. I would say number two, um, meds don't change you. When when a medication is needed, it doesn't change your personality and you don't have to be on them necessarily for the rest of your life. You know, the vast majority of medications and, you know, I would say they're used for a benefit. And if they're not a benefit, you stop using them. I always tell people you don't have to get a lifetime supply. So I guess number three would be when in doubt, ask your doctor, just like the commercials say, I don't get any kickbacks from using SSRIs. I think most of them are <laughs> generic now. So there's there's no secret interest of mine, but seeking help is a strength, Francie pointed out. And especially depression, it's the only thing where the symptoms prevent you from seeking help. So ask your doctor and trust your doctor, but we'd encourage you to get help if you feel like you may be suffering with mental health issues. You know, I think one of the big misconceptions that she corrected for me as a, you know, someone who doesn't prescribe these medications is that in most cases, these don't have to be lifetime medications. And I've never heard it so clearly. And I think that is a, a wonderful thing to know. Uh, we've had a previous guest and then she used the same analogy. It's like a cast. A, a cast is there to help a bone heal and the medication can be there until we can develop 
uh, skills, or as she said, even some of the medications train the body to make the receptors more effectively. Oh, a hundred percent. And I guess that would be my main message is if you're suffering, you know, you don't get extra credit for going without treatment. You know, <laughs> it doesn't make you stronger. If you want to be a good friend, a good husband, a good father, a good son, uh, get the help you need to live your full life. Because often we don't realize if we're suffering from those common things, depression or anxiety, how it really affects people around us. We think that we are containing all of our suffering, but we might be spreading it to others unknowingly. So if you're not going to do it for yourself, do it for them. Yeah. I talk to so many people who are like, I don't feel any different, but my wife says that I need to, to do it. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> she loves you. <laughs> it, it's a wonderful thing to have people that love you enough to say, hey, you're actually more you when you're taking this than when you're not. And that's, right. that's what we want to be. We want to be fully ourselves. Well, thank you for being with us for yet another episode of Dr. Doctor. We are the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association and invite you to share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app. And you can find all of our episodes on our website, drdoctor.org. For those who want to dive deeper into some of the topics, check our website for bonus links and information in our post for each episode. Just click latest at the top of our main page. This is Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Tune in for new episodes every Friday and find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.